Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners. Ready today, we're doing our first mailbag episode. We called out for your questions and comments, and we got a lot, which is cool. So we'll do our best to answer them after we have a brief look ahead to the Miami Grand Prix and the hype surrounding it. But we are still an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute, which we will manage for the Miami Grand Prix by bringing in Americans, Australians and a couple of sleepy Brits. But we will get that race review out for your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. I'm joined in the shed by Matt Two Rumpets. Not still trying to figure out exactly what time it is for me. Jetlag and Chris Stevens. Hey, Spanners, I'm so excited to read some mail with you. Yeah, after... Big Dirty News. Well, the news this week has basically just been wall-to-wall Miami. Uh, Miami, if it, if it hasn't yet completed a successful race, has successfully swamped the entire of F1's consciousness with the fact that there will indeed, Chris, be a race in Miami. We racing in Miami this weekend. Yeah, I know. I mentioned it. It's gone under the radar, hasn't it? But no, the, the promotion for it has been overwhelming. It has been glitzy. And actually, there's been a bit of a negative reaction to some of that glitz and glamour as well. And this is, I think, a classic European, mostly British, clash with US culture. So whilst in 2017 at Cota, let's get ready for race cars, didn't go down very well, Matt. It does seem like people don't seem to like a certain type of grandstand. The fake marina at the Miami Grand Prix track has been much discussed. To me, it just looks like some themed seating. 
Yeah, well, I mean, they had an entire fake castle at Baku, and that didn't seem to really bother anyone well, more than well. a little bit. But but I think you're right. I think there's sort of, a, I wouldn't even say mean-spirited, but just sort of this basic, oh, let's make fun of the thing, which is essentially, I, I think, more or less TV set dressing for the actual race. I, I think what was the surprise, or at least the surprise for me anyway, was I thought they were actually going to fill it with water and just okay. put some... Some boats in there, not just have the floor look like water. So for anyone who's missed any of this, basically they seem to have been trying to copy like the glamour of of the Monaco Grand Prix. And they've gone, oh, F1's coming to Miami. Oh, let's put up F1 looking things. And, and an F1 looking thing is yachts in the harbour. So some of the VIP seats look like yachts in a fake marina. But I think people thought it would be filled with water and it's just got a sort of blue acrylic on it. People are going nuts about that. But I think, Matt, what it is more kind of a, you know, I think what's really striking the F1, certainly social media sphere, is that this is this is the Americanization of F1, isn't it? This is big. This is loud. This is showy. Yeah, well, and it's it's proof of it's proof positive that chasing the American market wasn't wasn't an incorrect assumption in terms of the amount of money that it's being that's being brought in mercedes i I love this fact they've got a hundred sixty five thousand square feet of oceanfront venue and they're putting on an all-week event called electric beach which is also going to feature a demonstration formula one car run at some point the sponsors have gone absolutely mental for the zach brown says he's not just in F1, but in 20 years in motorsports, he's never seen uh, sponsors this excited about a race and this much effort being put in prior to the actual event. So the other side of that, though, because I heard that kind of boast from Zach Brown, Chris, and I thought it was a little bit odd that he was boasting about the amount of celebrities and, and VIPs that were going to be there. And like everybody else who sat at home and barely goes to it, gets to go to a Grand Prix is like, well, I hope they all have fun at their first Grand Prix. Uh, this is, you know, just a feature of every Grand Prix, isn't it? You know, we we always see, you know, Tom Cruise inside the Mercedes garage or, you know, there's some celebrity somewhere. This is on a pretty grand scale, though, it must yeah. be said. Bigger than, probably bigger than Monaco, maybe. Oh, well, well, we'll see what happens when, when they do go to Mon- Monaco later in the month. But it's um it's a pretty big deal, to say the least. All right, well, why don't we just have a quick look at the track, Matt? Because I must admit, apart from the the hype and the promo surrounding the attendance of it and the glitz of it, I haven't really heard much about the track, except that perhaps it's a, you'll have to compromise. There's a lot of low-speed corners, but there's a lot of long straights as well. Uh, yeah, well, uh, actually, can we start with my favourite hazard at the Miami Grand Prix that the circuit designers had to take into account? Okay. And that would be giant iguanas falling out of trees. Oh, am I being punked? Is this, are they nope. going to? So, no, it's, it's real. So it's it, a real thing. In some Australian tracks, what, what's the one where they go up the hills? Uh, we did it on iRacing. We did it on iRacing recently, and it, it's like a horror track through the mountains. But they have a kangaroo flag at that yep. track. So when there are kangaroos out, there's a special flag and a procedure. Are we going to have an iguana flag at Miami? No, we're not. But apparently, we're going to have marshals with nets. That we'll have to go around and poke tree branches and check concrete catchments to make sure that there's no critters ready to skitter across the racetrack. Okay. Do do we have any non-iguana insights into into how this track might be? Like, what are we expecting? Is it tight, twisty? Sorry, go on, Chris. 
Well, well, I was going to say there is there was a a lap from the new F one twenty two game that was oh, posted a little sort it. of you know a, a demo version of the game showing off the track from uh, AlphaTauri, I believe it was, and uh, I must say that first sector is sort of awfully akin of the Jeddah track. It is a very fast flowing S's section that opens up that lap, but it is also contrasted with what they're calling an error generating third sector. Yeah, well, essentially what you have is a track that's uh, 5.4 kilometers, is max speed about 320, and I think average speed, I'm going to give it to you in miles per hour because they didn't give it to me in kilometers, of about 135 miles per hour average speed. But we know four drivers who've driven it in the sim, Tsunoda, Gasly, Botas, and Perez, and they all have said nice things about it, although, you know, uh, they probably weren't wouldn't have said terrible, terrible things. But Botas in particular is like, it should be a good track. There should definitely be racing and overtaking. And they've been clever with how they've set up the DRS detection zone. So we're not going to get that problem we had at Jeddah. But what we might get is one driver being passed and then having DRS back to maybe try and overtake the other driver. So that could be a bit of fun. So I don't object to that. So where was it where we were seeing those repasses and people got a bit... A bit upset. Not well, upset. I, I was miffed at Jeddah because yeah. people were avoiding the line. This is it. So do we do we get those shenanigans where people are going, oh, I best... I see, that's what we're avoiding, Matt, here. Where people are, yes. are deliberately kind of not overtaking so they'll be in the best DRS. And that, that's the nightmare scenario of DRS, isn't it? Where it's so powerful that it's not worth doing a non-DRS pass. Like, why would you risk it? Yeah, and, and the, the designer of the track has taken that into account. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that twisty section that everyone's talking about. It was kind of interesting. The design firm, which is um, Apex Circuit Design, it's a UK firm, not affiliated with Tilka, as far as I can tell, having gone and looked at the people they list. It's uh, Corinne Chandok, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, because they did the um, the Abu Dhabi reconfiguration as well. Okay, well, they got very excited about this twisty sector. As it turns out, they've had to go under some highway overpasses. Sorry, dual carriageway overpasses. I'll Thank translate you. since I've recently been to Britain. And you know the lingo now. I know the lingo now. Uh, apparently, there's a rule in the FIA rule book that there's a maximum speed related to the square of the speed of the car when there's an elevation change. And because of the height of the overpass, they had to make it slow enough so they didn't violate that rule. And uh, according to the firm, it was 10 different 2 and 3D iterations before they were able to thread the needle to, to fit the concept design that was originally given to them to engineer the track. So it's, it's really a pretty amazing thing, uh, especially from an engineering point of view, which I know everybody is very, very excited about. Uh, you, you'll see in that third sector where they go underneath these, these highways, uh, where it, it sort of narrows up quite a bit. It slows down, especially that big rise in the middle of that sector. They've got like a little chicane in there um, as well. There's there's almost sort of elements of the Vietnam track in there um, as well, which um, depending on how successful you were at that in the Formula One game, you'll either love or hate. But we don't have any real world you know, experience to go and throw at it. I, I like the fact that we don't really know what's going to be happening this weekend. It's a It's a big lottery. Indeed, it is. And according to the designers, the whole point of that, it's turn 11 to 16, is to is to bring people back together through the slower parts of the track rather than spread them out. So it'll be interesting proof of concept if that's actually how it plays out in real life. 
I really hope it does because we've seen that uh, with the Mexico reconfigured third sector. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for example, yeah, yeah. through that stadium, it does not work at all. It really spreads the cars out. So here's hoping they've uh, learnt from those findings. A couple of stupid questions, because I'm really looking at the tra- map, track map for the first time. Is it clockwise? Anti-clockwise. Uh, oh, it's an anti-clockwise circuit. So you've got a very, very slow section before the main straight straight. And, and that, to me, does look a bit Mexico-y. That looks like it's going to spread the field out just before they get to a 90-degree turn and then the big long straight. So isn't isn't that the worst case scenario? If if it spreads them out, um, it depends on how the slow is configured. And it I don't think it's as tight as the entry to the stadium in Mexico is. I think it looks that way perhaps on a map, but I know minimum yeah. entry speed to that chicane is 80 kilometers, but then it stays slow for a bit so that so that you can sort of catch back onto the tail. And the back, As it were. And the back straight, which is at the bottom of the map, uh, that section leading into that looks a bit more hopeful, looks a bit more like Circuit of the Americas with some sweepers that are no big stops and no sort of big queues leading up to it. I don't, I don't know. Uh, with the If you look at Tilkadromes, if you look at the, the Shanghai Circuit, for example, Chris, where there's a, a couple of uh, sort of 90 degrees, but then you've got a big building up g-force right-hander before the main straight and that really really capitalizes on a on a straight that really didn't need any help anyway so that's that seems to be kind of an aim for for these long straights yeah absolutely i think there are plenty of great examples that uh, formula one can look at especially at past circuits i wish more circuits took inspiration from places like sepang because that was a great um track and you know it was i would like it, it off sepang. yeah it will be again will be I hope again. so <laughs> um but yeah obviously with sepang you had the big double straights so you had you come out of you know one straight which was pretty good on its own and then a, a long hairpin that was there wasn't like a, a huge stop if you like it was a a feed in and get on the power early so that produced a lot of racing there was different lines through that head but what you had is you had a, a very bizarre kind of off camber corner that you could take multiple lines in that really set up racing down the back straight then another corner with multiple lines on it. The final corner, another big long straight, yeah. multiple lines through the first two corners as well. You know, that is what sets up racing. Are we asking a bit too much for this track to be emulating probably two of the best modern F1 tracks that, that we're talking about? Maybe we should be comparing it more to like street circuits. Yes, because it is a street circuit and it is um, a compromise. All street circuits are because... It's not like you, when you, you, you level just, you know, a certain number of acres and it's like, I can do whatever I want with yeah. my acres. This is a street circuit. There is pre-built infrastructure that you have to navigate. And Matt, yeah. I th- go on then. Go on, Matt. Sorry. Well, I was going to say that's, and that's what we were talking about. That turn to 1116 was absolutely, they had no choice, but to design to parameters to fit around the infrastructure. So you're lucky if you can do that and still maintain good racing. You can't always. Yeah, so it's not just physical things you have to try and navigate, such as the Hard Rock Stadium, but also the safety parameters that are put into place by the you know circuit design regulations. In its favour, 5.2... Is that kilometres, Matt? 5.412 kilometres, yeah. Okay, well, that's not pokey. It's not massive, is it? But it's, it's, not, it's not a teeny, teeny, teeny. There's a bit it's of average. space. Yeah, right. No. Hey, look, it's a good-sized track. I, I've got the feeling from what I've seen that it's going to be somewhere in between 
a street circuit and a, a custom track. Um, I, I don't know if we're going to get the full-on traffic jams. But what I'm interested in, Matt, is the technical choices some of the teams might have to take. So there's there's really two big, long straights, but there's also some very slow corners. So, you know, what do they do? Do they pump up the ride height for the slow corners or do they rip off the wings for the straights? Uh, well, I can tell you Ferrari is bringing a lower uh, downforce package to this. So I think on balance, high speed to low speed, it's more of a medium to high speed circuit. So I would expect teams to be trimming downforce. And especially because the slow is like 80 kilometers an hour, perhaps trying to rely a bit more on the tires and mechanical grip. Uh, although arrow and mechanical grip are the same thing. I'm sorry, Summers, I didn't really mean it like that. But to rely more on suspension setup to help them out rather than uh, the amount of downforce they can generate through the slow section. Summers, our technical guy, is sitting there at home going, oh, no, Matt, I've explained to you the link between arrow and mechanical grip before. Chris. <laughs> so the good thing about these 2022 cars is the high-speed downforce is produced all underneath the car. They're not reliant on the wings anymore. So they can afford to trim those wings out and maybe not lose so much in the high speed. It's going to be about that lower speed third sector. So when you're talking about the vast majority of the lap, there's, there doesn't sound like there's going to be a, a loss to running a, you know, a thinner wing, for example. Mm. And I think the lesson that we learned in Saudi Arabia might be that that is the way to go anyway, because we saw you know, Red Bull with some superior top end speed that really helped them win that race so let's talk about i was going to say the top three just out of habit but let's talk about the top two and and mercedes and how they might set up for for the for the race because that's probably the most interesting ones ferrari uh, just seem to be getting things broadly correct so you would bet on them to to come here with a good package red bull have been looking fantastic in a straight line with a combination of i'm guessing is that is that from the power unit matt that's giving them straight line advantage uh, well, the power unit, but their entire their entire philosophy for this season was essentially based on being really, really, really fast. So they went minimal, less drag, uh, produced more mm. downforce from the floor, and they're aimed at maximum top speed because they felt with these with this regulation set that would give them the advantage. And even the power unit will have been tuned in the and the power unit will have been built for an energy deployment that matches that overall strategy, which if we're going to talk about Mercedes, one thing that we did talk about over the weekend with Summers off air was that the Mercedes power unit was designed for an energy deployment that the car cannot now deliver on track. And so when we say, why is Mercedes engine looking so slow, that might actually be part of the problem. Ferrari is the opposite. They went for a higher basic downforce concept, faster in the turns, engines got more grunt coming out of corners. And really, it's they're very similar in performance, the Red Bull and Ferrari. I think Ferrari have tapped into more of their overall power unit potential relative to Ferrari. And I think that we will see, it'll be interesting to see what Ferrari's first significant aero package in Miami brings to their performance. This is the important thing for Ferrari, isn't it? Because this is the first big update they've brought of the season, whereas Red Bull had quite a sizable upgrade in Imola, especially the diet that that car has been on. It's got a, got rid of a lot of the weight that it was carrying. And let's not forget, it's I think at this point, it's still only Alfa Romeo who are actually under the weight limit and using ballast 
to meet the regulations. So uh, the, uh, the the Red Bull, you know, looked very good at Imola. So let's see what Ferrari's upgrade does to that relative performance. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with you. Um, I, I'm I'm going to be interested because honestly, between Australia and Imola. I think it was less about overall car, car performance. I think they have about the same potential now, mm. but it's about who really got the the tires, the balance correct. In Australia, clearly, you look at the degradation Red Bull suffered, um, and and you can see that they were not able to maintain that pace because they were killing their tires because they overprotected the rears at the expense of the fronts. But I think we saw the same for Ferrari in Imola. I think what's going to be important here is because it's a fresh surface, isn't it? So it's going to be relatively low deg, probably, because it'll be very smooth. You know, not like oh, really? in Bahrain, for example, where the circuit's so abrasive, it chews the tires up. Ooh, uh, hang on, hang on. Cheeky bet on Valtteri Bottas, then, I think. Because that seems to be the track surfaces that suit him. I, I, I bet, don't gamble, gamble responsibly, don't bet. But when I bet last week... Uh, for the uh, Imola Grand Prix, I completely forgot that I'd put a cheeky bet on Bottas top five, which saved my my betting weekend. So a uh, top six, sorry, and he finished fifth. So I think I'm going to pile in on Bottas again. Could have uh, been fourth. Should have been fourth. Stop gambling when the fun stops, etc. <laughs> Chris, um, but yes, the um, because the the surface is going to be very smooth. I don't think it's going to cause that too much wear. I think we might be looking at more thermal deg because it's very fast and. I would anticipate that Miami is quite hot this time of year. Yes, it's very warm and lacks humidity, and the temperatures last into the evening, allowing for mm. evening soirees and margaritas. Matt. Now, I haven't ever lived in Miami, but I did spend a decent chunk of time in Florida uh, playing Sarasota Opera years ago. And there is a feature of Florida weather that might be very interesting, and that is the afternoon thunderstorm. Ooh, just out of nowhere. Just, yeah, out of nowhere, somewhere between usually like two or three o'clock and about five o'clock, you'll just get an absolute drencher. It'll just pour for 10 or 15 minutes and then it'll be sunny again. And if that happens, well, streets are going to know. I guarantee that's going to be kind of an interesting race at that point. Okay. So I was uh, tempted to go uh, and and sort of think about McLaren, but McLaren's like a point, a coin flip. So I think it's only worth looking at McLaren's performance once they hit the track because they could win or be last. That's how I feel about McLaren this season. But but Mercedes, I think, is interesting. The way they're talking, they're talking about perhaps finding a cure. And no, it's not finally admitting that they should have had side pods on the car the whole time. But the way they're talking is, well, we think there's a, a few different directions we can go. And like Miami is either going to confirm or deny that. But the impression I got from the language, Matt, was not that they're bringing the cure, if you like, to Miami, but they will find out what the cure is for Barcelona. Yeah, well, um, in, in reading what Andrew Shevelin had to say, it seems the like they yep. feel they're bringing, um, and I think this was pushed forward. I think this was originally scheduled for Barcelona, in case you're wondering how exactly, what kind of alarms are going off at Mercedes headquarters <laughs> right now. I believe this is probably regionally intended for Barcelona, but they brought it now. They're bringing updates that they feel will let them lower the ride height, which will drastically improve their performance and bring it closer to the potential that they calculated for it when they designed it originally. But as you say, it's an experiment. Yeah. So I like the, okay, 
like they've got two directions and i guess you can only really go one way over a race weekend and and so they're going to pick one so even if they uh you know if they start bouncing so much that they take off and start collecting iguanas from trees they might be able to go ah no no it was the other one we're good for barcelona so they they might be facing a bit of a, a coin flip this weekend as well yeah but it's good because it's it will it sounds like the data that they want to correlate with what they've predicted are the kind that will tell them that there is an available solution this way, or there isn't an available solution mm. this way. Yeah. And that is what we've not seen from them. They've just sort of been hesitating, waiting to collect enough data. But the fact that they think they understand it and that they're collecting specific data to make a decision is good news if you're a Mercedes fan. It means that that they're on the cusp of either, well, as we like to used to say, you're either going to fish or cut bait. you got to do one. So the fear is that they're on the cusp of just getting a bit closer to Ferrari and Red Bull. Uh, but, you know, if you're a Mercedes fan, then uh, fingers crossed this is a path forward. Just just one last thing I want to ask Matt, then Chris come in and then we'll go to the mailbag, is you talked about the aim being to lower the ride height. Obviously, yeah. they can just physically lower the ride height if they want. But is if they were to do that, is that because the porpoising would just smash the driver through the floor if they did that now? It would smash the floor. The car, oh, the right. car would become more undrivable, uh, which is essentially... Basically, they said, how low can we have the car and still be able to drive it? And that's where they are right now. If they can lower it and just be able to drive it, then they'll be much faster than they were. And just another thing to keep in mind with all the cars you see porpoising is understand none of the internal parts of that car were designed to be bound. No, we just had a little bit of a freeze there from Matt. Uh, Chris, what was your point? So uh, my question was going to be about um, the the weather in in Miami. Just to clock back to that, because I had a a flashback to the twelve hours of Sebring earlier this year, um, which was that when the, a thunderstorm came towards the circuit, they had to stop the race because it is uh, a law. I can't remember if it's state law or if it's the U.S. law that they have to stop the race. To protect the marshals. Ah, okay. So I know Matt kind of teased us a little bit there with the super intense storms that hit Miami, but they may not end up playing that much of a factor if they have to stop the race. I see. Well, look, uh, we have lost Matt temporarily, but let's move on to our, our mailbag anyway. Maybe it's one of those famous storms that has just rolled over America land and cut out Matt's internet there. So we'll go to your mailbag and you can always contact us, feedback at mistapex.net or matt at mistapex.net or spanners at mistapex.net. We'll set one up for Chris as well if he wants one. But let's get to the mailbag now. The first one is from... Uh, let's just do a, a few quick ones first because Ledra, um, Mark Ledra, amongst others, said... Just listen to the latest podcast with Sean Kelly. It was excellent. Please try to get Sean back on the podcast as he's an excellent guest. Uh, keep up the great work. And lots of people had a really, really strong reaction to to Sean's appearance and also to his pole position rant, which mm -hmm. was absolutely fantastic. Uh, so, yes, we have been speaking to him and he is very keen to come back on in the near future as well. And, and we'll actually we'll try and make it. Uh, fairly regular to come on during those segment shows and you know drop in and give us half an hour when we can catch up with him and also of course we had a lot of positive feedback 
from Will Buxton being on the show. Uh, Randy says, long-time listener and Patreon supporter, patreon.com forward slash Mr. Apex, to support us. I really enjoyed the Buxton interview, and I do like tyre talk. Thanks for the information. And there was a, another tyre bit of feedback here as well, which we probably do need Matt for. Uh, he says, hi, Matt and Spanners. This is from Chris Wilcox. Hello. I'm one of those annoying new US fans that found F1 from Drive to Survive. Uh, officially, uh, Initially, I found the politics personalities and stories under the surface of f1 so fascinating and now i've been sucked in completely and it's thanks in part to you well you're you're welcome chris enjoy losing sundays forever chris Uh, i do like to think that we are welcoming of the newer fans the dts you know lot whether it's through dts or or not but i i like to think we hit the point of uh, welcoming the new fans and keeping the uh the the elder fans the, the elder well. so we're elder fans the, the elder scroll no not like in age but you know what i mean so uh chris continues uh, thank you guys matt specifically i found myself arguing with my brother-in-law about tire strategy in the wet cool temperatures and i was actually right it's a dream come true so we've armed him we've uh and sorry chris you're not on our screen at the moment but we've armed Chris with the the power to win argument. So here's the danger is that Chris isn't going to share the podcast now with his brother-in-law because he wants to keep that unfair advantage. Yeah, that's uh that's a, a tactical thought there, but uh he should share it. He should share it with everyone he knows from one Chris to another. Please share the show with as many people <laughs> as possible. All right, let's uh, let's move down the the mailbag here. As I as I as I wrestle with some some technical issues at my end, but there you go. People can see you again, Chris, at least. And uh, we had a really good question here about Monaco. Uh, So this is from Scott D, who who suggests, why not make Monaco the first race of the season? Here's his rationale, Chris. European weather might have rain. Unpracticed rusty drivers result in more variants. And I think by variants, we can read carnage so you, that's either a good or a, or a bad thing depending on how you see it uh rookies immediately are tested by a street circuit again that seems like it would cause uh, more chaos um it's a known asset with lots of data for good for engineers understandings uh, understanding the new cars after the winter build um untested upgraded cars might result in some season opener shockers and mix up the championship I'm not sure I'm entirely sold on this. Chris, what do you think? No, so there are things, boring reality things that I have to remind everyone of is because the Monaco Grand Prix is organized by the Automobile Club de Monaco, not Formula One. And it is the center point of the calendar, much like how the World Endurance Championship calendar is built around Le Mans. They set the date for Le Mans first, and then they do everything else. Formula One sets the date for the Monaco Grand Prix and then everything else because it is built around the Ascension Day holiday, which tends to fall at the end of May. So even if we push that aside and having to also uh, reschedule the Monaco Historic Grand Prix and the Formula E, the Monaco E-Prix that happens there as well, I don't think it would actually make all that much of a difference because it fundamentally will not change the nature of the race which is that it's a very difficult street track yes but drivers will not be rusty by the time they get to the first race because they'll have done pre-season testing and loads of laps in the sim and that kind of 
thing. So I don't think it would alter that much. There's also the the idea as well that Monaco is built around glamour and, and beauty and bringing the celebrities and the sponsors and showing off the <laughs> yachts and harbour. Why would you deliberately aim for poor weather in that scenario? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I can see people who are... Uh, fans of Monaco um, and there's, there's seven or eight still left that are starting to see the writing on the wall a little bit a lot of the arguments aren't washing that you have to be there really doesn't cut it for a worldwide audience the the test of oh it's the ultimate test of driver skill does not survive into Sunday when we know that cars are just plodding around to make sure they don't have to pit more than once I don't know Matt is could it be like a, a showpiece where we go, okay, Monaco's rubbish, but it's just a way to kick off. But don't worry, Bahrain's second next week. Yeah, I mean, I think with Monaco, what you get is is what you see. Is It's a historic event. It's like when they play the Masters and people can drive the green from 300 yards away because they've made the courses different to deal with the advent of newer technologies. Monaco will be a special place, I think, on the Formula One calendar always, but not because of the racing so much anymore. Qualifying, it's fun to watch, but we all just accept, yeah, it's just, you know, it's happy memory. It gives us an excuse to watch all that old footage again. I I don't know why at this point there aren't Monaco-specific rules. There are Le Mans-specific rules. There are Indy 500-specific rules. Why do we not have specific rules for Monaco to try and make it a little bit more of a show busy entertainment uh tv spectacle that retains a sporting element oh my god i've solved it oh wow i don't believe it and it does involve sprints which is awful because i hate sprints but they are here to stay sprints are going to become an integral part of of race weekends but i think i've solved it so you have the monaco showpiece which has essentially some kind of a format like time trials or a qualifying run over two days it's still a spectacular festival of motorsport combine it with formula e and w series as well and make it a really fun weekend there, there might be some minimal points for it but it decides the grid for the barcelona grand prix the following weekend that has a sprint race so it's like the pre-qualifying for the barcelona sprint race the next weekend you don't have to have the Friday qualifying for that one. And then you go racing. Genius. Uh, email me spanners at mistapex.net to tell me how amazing that idea is. Chris, don't ruin it. Okay. Well, when that doesn't happen, um, what we can do is, is look back at, at other things that might work. I mean, there is a couple of like small things. Like we used to have practice on a Thursday, for example, because of the Friday holiday the Monaco Grand Prix is the only race that's under 300 kilometers, I think, in race distance. I think it's like 40 kilometers shorter than any other race because it's so slow as a lap. Uh, we'd be there all afternoon if we did the full 300k plus a lap that traditionally is uh, <laughs> is a Grand Prix distance. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, there's something we can do with tires or something we can do with a strategy rule. There's There's got to be some way we can spice it up a wee bit. There we go, Matt. We'll just have, like, fully chocolate tyres for Monaco. Uh, Yes. Well, I I mean, that's an idea. Although, who knows? Maybe Monaco will be one of the places they pick to trial the new qualifying format next year. Oh, God. What are they doing? What are they doing? Tell me. No, no. Get a load of this, guys. Right? 
How about we do Q1 on hard tires, Q2 on mediums, and then Q3 on softs? Why? Because, well, what they want to do, they want to reduce the number of tire sets everyone has because I think at the moment there are two sets of soft tires that just get used once in quality and then are completely discarded. So in in an effort to reduce costs for, I guess, Pirelli and the transportation and also think about the eco side of things of carrying those tires around the world, let's reduce the number of sets we have you know, by by two and then they don't have those soft tires for qualifying what i would much prefer is you say okay you have to use hard medium and soft at some point in quality but you you decide when all right see matt we'll we'll roll back to tires in a second in fact we'll just do that now quickly because we did have the an email earlier apologies i think it's chris who said that your tire talk has helped him win an argument with his brother-in-law. So he's very grateful there. But actually, unlocking tyre strategy is probably one of the key things for new listeners, uh, for new viewers, to really tap into what's going to happen in the race and to be able to make predictions in the race, especially how they react around pit stops. Yeah, uh, I mean, understanding how the tyres get used, understanding where the compromises lie, understanding that certain chassis will deal better with certain higher types than others but and mostly just understanding how ridiculously important a part of the overall car performance the tire is 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 everything to understanding the sport let's move on from tires oh you weren't going to move on from tires at all were you matt i was just gonna say but mostly i'm just (laughs) glad he was able to win the argument because that really matters even more yeah but that doesn't mean you should not share it with your brother-in-law always share the link uh, mistapex.net and that gives people a chance to see and hear us because there is a video and an audio version so if you're a video person go and download the podcast so that it's there in case you've got a commute or something you never know when you might need it and if you're an audio person just go and check out the video by on youtube because apparently uh, matt sounds like a big fat guy everyone thinks he's a big fat guy and everyone thinks that i'm like a 50 year old dude So we surprise everyone. Go check out. Have both. Why not have both, eh? A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Adam Davies says, Hello, Mr. Apex crew. I love your podcast and thanks for doing a mailbag episode. You're welcome. Uh, you guys often describe courses as unrepresentative, particularly for early season races, with regards to whether it's okay to extrapolate wildly about the results of specific drivers or teams. As someone relatively new to F1, uh, who would like permission to extrapolate wildly, I would like to know what makes a course representative and what's the most representative course on the calendar. Now, I totally understand this question because I think this season has been one of the least representative openings in a way, apart from Bahrain early on. And so we've used the term unrepresentative a lot, Chris. So this is worth unpicking. But even Bahrain has its quirks as a night race or in the middle of the desert, so it's covered in sand and all this, right? So what we mean when we talk about representative tracks is trying to look at a, the most traditional circuit possible, you know, rather than, say, looking at street tracks, for example, or night races. When the Formula One season used to start in Australia, for example, in Melbourne, that was a very different sort of racetrack than you would get at the next five Grand Prix, for example, until they got to Monaco or something, and then there's another street track. Street tracks, because they used to be uh, quite few and far between, they used to be a rarity. Now they're becoming sort of more of a commodity, really, and a mm. filling up the gap. I mean, yeah, we've got such a big calendar now. The idea of a representative racetrack is really starting to fall thin. But we're looking for, you know, as few quirks as possible. So, say, like in Mexico and Brazil, you have the altitude there. Um, when we talk about representation in testing, it's because it's freezing cold. And so it's not representative of the conditions that they'll be running through the most of the season. A variety of corners, you know, a mix between slow and, and fast ones like Monza, for example. It's the only racetrack that requires that super low level of downforce. Like you mm. won't run a Monza setup anywhere else. So I think this season in particular, so we've, we've had Bahrain, like you say, it's its quirks, but it's a modern racetrack for modern yeah. race cars. I much prefer that. And I think that is more representative than the Melbourne has traditionally been. But then we go to a very new all out kind of Baku style street circuit in, in Saudi and then go to Australia, which we know doesn't tend to ext extrapolate results for the future. And then Imola, which is really is a very old school track, not particularly suited to modern F1 cars. That's only on the calendar really from the pandemic. And, you know, as they were scrambling around for tracks and then a brand new street track in Miami as well. So I think the first time we get to a track that probably is like a representative of a European track that tests everything, Chris, lastly, is, is, is Barcelona. And then we yes. go to Monaco, which is representative of 1950. Yeah, so traditional Barcelona for sure. But I would actually say the first kind of repeat style of track we've had is Miami and, and Jeddah. There seems to be quite a few similarities in the way that they are mm. very high-speed street tracks with very new surfaces mm. as well. And so then we'll, maybe yeah. Saudi, because it's a night race, it's, it's a slightly different. But and then we'll have Baku, very similar. We'll have Baku, which, which again yeah. is probably pretty similar. But Baku, for the most part, it also has a lot of the old, you know, normal street surface there as well, rather than a new uh, asphalt. Two rumpets. Well, I just want to say that, like, the concept, if I can be allowed to make my own stab at simplifying it, is essentially average. When we mm. say representative, we're looking for the most average track, meaning it's got the proper mix of all the different elements you'll see at the more extreme tracks. And when you mention Barcelona, the reason all the teams like to test there 
One, they have immense reams of historical data about how all their cars have ever run there ever in every temperature with every kind of tire. So it's great for them to be able to compare past iterations of stuff to what they currently have. And because they run at Barcelona and testing and again in the race, it's also a nice, um, it's also a nice data point for them to see how the developments have gone. And if I can take another stab at simplifying it, let's say it's the only race you see and you get to gaze into the future and see that one Grand Prix, can you then predict whether they will do well for the season? So Bahrain, I would say, yes. If you saw that one race from the past, you'd go, ah, Mercedes did well at Bahrain, they're going to win the championship. Saudi Arabia, no. Melbourne, no. Imola, probably no. Miami, don't know, but probably no. Spain, yes. Monaco, no. <laughs> Back yeah, so, so true. I know, but this is the most mixed up we've been, and it just so happens that they're packed uh, into the start. But then you get to, you know, you get to Montreal, Silverstone, Spielberg, Paul Ricard, Hungaro Ring, Spa, Zandvoort. Then we're getting a little bit more into like the chunk of the old heritage tracks, and and then the the Tilkadromes into the second half. Yeah. And the thing that's lovely about Barcelona is it really does have this mix of different elements. So you mentioned Monaco and always, it's always, it's a chestnut, but oh, if you do well in sector three Mm. in Barcelona, you've got a car that can do well at Monaco. And because it has such a mix, you can look at individual sectors and for the more extreme races, you can say, oh, well, they did really well in this sector. So we might expect a track that has a lot of that for this particular car to be competitive. But if your car does well at Barcelona in the whole race, then you know you've got a good all-round car that can be adapted to a lot of the different races. And that's that's what we'll see. We'll see who's there, who's thereabouts, and who's uh, still chasing their tail a bit. Okay, well, good. Well, hopefully uh, that, I think uh, that was quite good. I didn't quite know what our answer was going to be until we started talking about it. So hopefully that does kind of make sense. So let's move on to another question. And there's one from Alan Campbell asking about sprint races. And I think we have heard this idea before. I think Chris will have the best insight into this because you know a lot more about the junior ladder. But uh, Alan asks, for sprint weekends, could you have the same structure for sprint weekends except you have to use a reserve driver in both cars and it counts for constructors' points only? This would prevent the view of messing with the driver's championship. It gives young drivers a crack and it rewards teams for having a good development pipeline could even make it double the current points to prevent the the leading teams from protecting the car for Sunday. What do you think, Chris? Right, so first of all, I disagree with the idea that sprints mess with the driver's championship. It's part of the championship. It's part of the event. You have to do well at them. Same for The only thing I I think that messes with the championship was like what we did in 2014 with the double points thing. That was stupid. But the idea of having reserve drivers, I think, has a few problems. The first one being that reserve drivers don't really go to every race. Teams, a lot of teams share reserve drivers as well, depending on sort of affiliations with manufacturers, but also I don't think anyone's going to care about them. You're there to go and watch the best drivers in the world, not the, you know, the 20th to 40th best drivers in the world. Well, hang on a minute. You're firstly, the races have support series. So people, do like a good support package and but but they have a purpose they have a purpose of bringing people to the pinnacle of the sport what do the reserve drivers bring to this event that's like you're like saying oh we can't use a motor car 
because that'll never catch on. There's nowhere to put the steering wheel on my horse. <laughs> we just change. You're, you're saying within the current system, we couldn't do that. But if we make it so you don't share reserve drivers, so we make it the teams must, as part of their F1 contract, have a development program, then they would all have juniors, you know, coming through. Matt? Yes, well, not to pour a lot of cold water over the idea, because the idea of, of giving the junior drivers, uh, the, the I say junior drivers, but like the test and reserve drivers, people who are properly part of, however they got there, the Formula One team, their own series. Well, that's nice. But I think from a marketing point of view, yeah, I do see the point that Chris is making, but I have a much simpler one, which is we've all seen how the rookies have fared in Formula One, how much they've cost the teams in terms of repaired parts and cars. And I'm just going to say they would, the F1 teams would use this as a loophole to demand way more room under the cost caps, because essentially you're taking very inexperienced drivers chucking them into a Formula One car and saying, go race. And if I'm the driver whose car gets smashed, yeah. I'm not going to be really happy about that. So that, yeah, do you, do you, do they share the car with the main drivers and risk the car being smashed to bits and not ready for qualifying or not ready for the race? Or do you force teams to suddenly start making four cars every year? That's never going to work. Okay, so we're talking about having a separate race where younger drivers can drive around i mean that does already exist in the yes, form of formula two so i mean what problem are we trying to solve with bringing those drivers into formula one you could have a formula 1.5 where the really promising talent goes into team funded junior teams that that would be an idea but you're talking about extra racing when really f2 already exists and i think we People want a place. I think this has been thought of because people are angry that Oscar Piastri is not racing yeah, yeah. this season, the reigning F2 champion. This would all be solved if you were just allowed to defend your F2 title like you are in Moto2, for example. Yeah, or you could make it, you know, even some kind of promotion or relegation, you know, as drivers fall off or their careers don't spark, you know, you get a cover line and go, well, okay, maybe a season in, in F2 will, will get me back on track. You know, the same is in football. Uh, I think that spells doom. If you have to go back, the only person I ever worked for was Roman Grosjean. That's because he went and won the thing immediately. Well, there you go, Matt. Uh, yeah, I think the solution is, is going to come to us from the realms of MotoGP, where the support series have been made into proper world championships yep. on their own, because there's never going to be enough room on the F1 grid for the talent that we have and if you want them to remain around the sport and be ready to jump in when it's time then you really need to give them some reason to not go off to indycar or super formula or some other place where they can where they can make money and do the thing that they love to do i don't have so much of a problem with f2 and f3 not being world championship status i think it really makes a difference and i think what it would then force it to do is become part of the, the support package of every single grand prix and they're already, they've already stretched the calendar to 14 races, and that's too many for the teams to be sustainable, really, in terms of finance. Like, it was it was really difficult when they were trying to alternate uh, last season between F2 and F3 on the support package. Suddenly saying to them, you've now got to start going to the States and to Asia and to South America, that is going to blow a massive hole in their budgets that they cannot 
afford. Okay. That's why they tend to focus on the European races. So that's why I like my Formula 1.5. And I, I would like to see a little bit more movement between the tiers. What I don't really like about Formula 1, I'll contradict something I said a couple of weeks back when I was talking about the hero status of drivers. And that's cool for them to be marketed and them to be our idols. But they do hang around an awful long time. So I would want to see F1 so competitive that Vettel would be struggling to stay in F1, even if he wanted to. Kimi Raikkonen, email matt at mistapex.net. Kimi Raikkonen should not have been in F1 as, as long as he was. Felipe Massa, Barrichello, Alonso maybe. But people are holding on to these, these places when they're arguably uncompetitive. And if you if you had more of a, a promotion relegation system, that would that would just increase the overall quality. Not only that, but you would get people like Massa, Raikkonen, Grosjean dropping into this second tier, and that would make those series infinitely more watchable. If Magnussen had not just dropped out of F1, but had dropped into a lower tier because he couldn't ha- keep his place, I, I would have watched that lower tier to watch Magnussen. I think you you tend to find those drivers they'll go and do IndyCar or WEC or something in LMP2 wow. or the new hypercar thing. And it's really great for those series to have those drivers as True. well, or yeah. formally something like that. So that proves but my I, point, I, that it would be yeah. good for the lowest series. The, the, the problem with drivers at the moment is they're getting into Formula 1 at a younger age than ever before. They are racing until an older age yeah. than ever before. They've extended the career of these drivers so massively, and yet we have fewer spots on the grid yeah. than we did 10 years ago. So it doesn't add up. We need, you know, that's why this idea of we've got Porsche and Audi coming onto the grid. Why are they only coming in as manufacturers? Why can we not, you know, create the space for them to add another four cars onto the grid Mm. and then so many of these problems go away? Oh, yeah, I suppose we better touch on that. So the Audi coming in and buying McLaren, is that the new thing? Maybe. All Uh. we know at the moment, the VW boss has said that Audi and Porsche will be in Formula oh. 1 in 2026. The suspicion is that Porsche will buy a majority stake in the Red Bull powertrains right. um, thing, and they will partner with with Red Bull. And Audi is going to buy a team, whether it's McLaren. They're, they're pretty much everyone from fourth and below have been linked with being bought by Audi lately, including McLaren, Aston Martin, um, not AlphaTauri because they're owned by Red Bull, but pretty much everyone else uh, apart from Haas and Alfa Romeo maybe. Okay, so no more, no more new cars. I want my thirty no. car grid. I want it now. I know, Damien or Tommy Damien. See, when you have two first names in your name, I can't tell. So either Tommy Damien or Damien Tommy has a podcast idea for you, Matt, an episode idea. Trumpet's okay. commentary on sprint races this week got me thinking. Could you do an in-depth episode on the financial side of F one? If you think tire talk, oh dear, I I think this could help explain a lot of things that the average fan might consider a bad idea. Where does the money come from? Who does it go to? Does a pay driver bringing more money to a back market team than the increased reward for finishing one point higher? A subject we've talked about a lot. Who who gains what because of sprint races, etc. We could get you some interesting uh, guests for a a Matt-led finance episode, Matt. I think I'd be happy to do that. It's really the business side of Formula One generally does not get talked about for the same reason that business usually doesn't get talked about that much, which is like it's just inherently not the most exciting thing in the world. But it oftentimes explains why seemingly bizarre and incredible decisions get taken is because behind the scenes, there's someone going, 
This is this is net negative. This is net positive. So we do the net positive. Do you think the cost cap has worked or changed anything? Uh, it has changed absolutely things. And do I think it's working? Well, I don't know. Where's Mercedes in the championship? Help me out here. Can I just say, I think the best thing to come out of this cost cap is that it is encouraging the top teams in Formula One to go and put their name on other things. McLaren has put so much more into their IndyCar project. For example, Ferrari is going back to Le Mans. Mercedes have pulled their Formula E team, but I'm sure they're going to do something. And We've got more of the the best brands and the biggest names in in Formula One going and, and trying other things as well. And I think that's only going to enrich these other series as well and is better for motorsport in general. And one of the fears, though, Matt, were from people was, well, how would you possibly check? How could you know? Teams are just going to bypass it all. But I guess the fear of an audit is a big enough incentive, and I'm sure they have to hand their books in, don't they? Well, I mean, I wouldn't even worry about an audit. Let's look at how Formula One basically runs. The FIA promulgates a set of rules, tells all the teams they have to obey the rules. The teams all then seek to cheat as much as possible. But what else do they do? Oh, they watch their rivals with an eagle eye. And any time they think any hint of funny business is going on, they write the kind of letters that third graders uh, write, uh, sorry, eight-year-olds write to their teachers. (laughs) He touched me first. He didn't really write the answers down. They rat out their other teams as often as possible. So yeah, maybe the FIA won't catch it, but I guarantee you that Red Bull or Mercedes or some other accounting firm is busy looking at every dollar and cent and comparing it to what the cost cap says. All right, we'll get to a, a couple more questions here. Uh, we've got one from, well, this doesn't seem like so much of a question, actually. Uh, Brian Darcy says, dude, that's how you know it's American. I call people dude all the time as well. Standard American new F1 fan here started watching through Drive to Survive. I, I found your podcast after your appearance on The Ringer with Kevin Clark. And that's right. I've been all over the place this season. <laughs> Main reason we're hearing about it. Yeah. But uh, congratulations. That was a good appearance. What do you mean? It was, it was all right, wasn't it? It was good. No, I mean, congratulations. Like, literally, you got invited onto a big thing yeah. and you did a great job. What a British I don't blame thing. you for talking about it. I would You got a compliment and immediately thought it was sarcasm. <laughs> that's exactly what happened i thought what's he driving out here what's he playing at Uh, anyway brian's email uh continues uh, miss apex podcast might be my favorite sports podcast i listen to well that's you know high praise indeed highly entertaining and informative Uh, you offer your opinions however biased they are but aren't condescending about it and i will say we get accused of being biased all the time so yeah you're acute you may as well accuse me of wearing a shirt because yes we say who we support, and you can put our comments and and our viewpoints. In context of that, that happens in a lot of other sports. It's only F1 where content creators seem to be scared to say who they're cheering for. As a devoted Nicholas Latifi fan, (laughs) I was very happy to see the the video re-emerge of the 2014 uh, Florida Winter Series with oh, Max yeah. Verstappen and Nicholas Latifi going toe-to-toe at the Miami Speedway. And boy, oh boy, it was a mega battle. Just watching my boy, Nicky, give it to the to the guy who admittedly it was his first ever single-seater race. But that's, <laughs> no, that's by the by. Yeah, and, and following a, a driver or, or a team passionately and having some, uh, you know, some some skin in the game 
is all a, a part of sport. And I think if there's a, a podcast or a journalist that you're listening to and they don't talk about who they're supporting and cheering on, I mean, they're definitely cheering on someone. Everyone is. They're lying to your face and they suck. Chris. Do, do you think that when the Nürburgring 24 hours happens in the next two or three weeks, that I'm going to be sitting there hoping, oh, I, I, I do hope that uh, a lot of the manufacturers get what they want. No, I'm rooting for Porsche. Porsche need to win. They've got to defend that crown. I'm rooting for them. Yeah, man. See, that's passion. So thank you for that uh, that message there, uh, Brian. He continues, uh, please keep working hard and being kind. We'll definitely do that. A slightly more serious subject matter here with uh, Leanne Hawthorne, who says, uh, may I send you an unintentionally creepy DM? Yes, you can, Leanne. I have opened all my, my DMs again. I went through a bit of a off-season grump after 2021 uh, where all my DMs were horrible, but they're open again now. I'm having some lovely conversations again. Um, but they, Leanne would like to know about my reaction to, to Senna's death in 1994, which is a, a well-timed question. This is, was it the other day? Yesterday was the, the anniversary of, uh, of Ayrton Senna and, and uh, Ratzenberger tragically losing their lives at, at Imola. And I was 13 at the time. And Leanne just says, I, I really appreciate you guys and what you do. For some reason, I, ju- I just wanted to see what you said about that race, which I watched at the time but couldn't remember. Uh, I think you get a lot of uh, grief on social media. And I want you to know that the opening monologue is beautiful and perfect. Okay, uh, I don't know if it's a specific one, but thank you. Keep on keeping on. So, 94 was interesting for for a number of reasons in my F1 fandom. I don't think you were watching at the time, Matt, and I don't think Chris was born, but I was watching with my dad, and so my dad was watching F1 in a, a in a time where there was a lot more fatalities, a lot more injuries, but for me, that weekend was the first one that really appeared in my consciousness as a, as a young man, Matt. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, you're correct. I wasn't actually, at that time, I had seen Mario Andretti in my youth racing in Formula One on ABC Wide World of Sports or whatever it was. But it was a big enough deal that it crossed over very rapidly into our entire news cycle. I mean, just just to put some context to what you're about to say. As an American not following the sport, it was on the nightly news that night. All the sports shows covered it and talked about it as a very serious and tragic thing. And I believe it's always tragic, but I be- that's the first time I can remember a media reaction mm. like that to such an event. Yeah, of course, that's interesting the way it permeates around the world. But I've been watching it you know, since the, the early 80s as a, you know, just plonked down in front of the TV like I now plonk my kids in front of the TV on race day and then lose them to a second screen these days. but. For my dad, obviously, yeah, tragedy in F1 was just part and parcel for it. And a lot of people, the danger element of Formula One and motorsport draws them to it. And I, I'd never really felt like that. And then that that weekend in qualifying with Ratzenberger having an accident and dying, and then subsequently Senna, of course, that was the one that was newsworthy. Eh? It was not that they both weren't newsworthy, but Senna was the big star in Formula One, it would be like losing Hamilton now. I think Formula One has had two major wake-up uh, calls, or maybe maybe three if you include include Bianchi, but there, there was a similar reaction from Senna's death from the sport 
to when Jim Clark died, which was this was one of the greatest racing drivers we've ever known. You know, so for them to be killed in an accident, something needs to change. Yes. And of course, there's two things to cover there, which is the fan reaction and then the sport reaction. And I don't want anyone in any way to think I'm demeaning Ratzenberger's death, but the Senna with the name and the way it permeated in the way that Matt was talking about it uh, is the one that has, you know, has echoed the most through history. And certainly as a child, you go, wow, this really is a dangerous sport. We can lose our heroes at any time. And then that stuck with me, even though there wasn't a death then until 2013, all that time watching Formula One, I had that in the back of my head, that any time there's an incident, something could go could go wrong. And so now when my boy's watching it, the whole time he's been watching Formula One, there hasn't really been a, a serious injury or a fatality. So for example, when Grosjean in Bahrain had the fireball going through the, the barriers, his reaction was one of almost like a movie reaction. Whereas to me, I'm still like holding the table going, this could be this could be real bad. But you were around Matt and watching F1 properly, I know with me, during the Jules Bianchi incident as well at Suzuka. Yep. And I think I think both of us were quite emotional at the time and quite angry at the time because we had, I think me and you were alike in that we don't need danger and fatalities in F1 to enjoy it. And the Bianchi one seemed, in hindsight, of course, so avoidable and 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 a a something that you would almost not look at until it had happened. But we'd come off the back of an era of F1 where I think people still felt complacent about deaths and fatality in the sport. Whereas post-Bianchi, there's much more people like me that are saying, if we could just cut all that out to get all together, that would be cool. Yeah, well, the thing about Bianchi that really, uh, to this day, I, I think is hard is that this, unlike other deaths we have seen, unlike the implementation of the halo, where you can't always predict things where you need an edge case to happen in order to say we need to engineer a solution. I think the Bianchi thing with the with the tractor, with the crane on track, Martin Brundle in particular had been calling out for a long time. He called it out during the broadcast, and then we got the worst case scenario from it. And I think the fact that that's what it took to spur the FI into action is sad. They should have, it was there. It was low enough hanging fruit that they should have thought about it. But the fact is, I think it also changed their approach to be yes. much more proactive. So in that sense, maybe that was the edge case they needed to say, oh, we really need to think about how we take safety seriously at this institution differently after this. There were enough close calls with tractors on racetracks or recovery vehicles, whatever, to think we should maybe do something about that. And they didn't until it was too late. And why in that race as well were they racing in what was effectively a, a huge storm? That I, I don't think that race ever should have really gone ahead with the point that the sun was going down, the visibility was atrocious, and there was a literal typhoon in Japan. Why were we racing? So Jose's made the point there that Bianchi's death has probably saved several lives already because of the implementation 
of the Halo. And I would agree with that, except for the Halo was implemented because of Surti's death and was at F2 when he got hit yeah. with a loose wheel. That's why the development of the Halo was ongoing at the time. Uh, Justin Wilson in uh, IndyCar as well, back in 2011, I think it was. So there, there, were, there were enough cases to think that we should stop thinking about you know fully open cockpit single-seaters. And it's nice that that has fully made its way down the racing ladder now down to Formula 4 level. So, Leanne, thank you very much for your, for your question. I don't think it's something that I've actually spoken about on the podcast before, yet in the back of my mind, that danger element and the drivers that we've lost along the way have formed a big part of my F1 viewing experience. And I do hold my breath when Kimi Raikkonen did that rejoin at Silverstone uh, coming out of the village complex and, and, and went across a bunch of drivers. Even Roman Grosjean lighting it up from the outside after a spin and, and, and coming across a whole pack of cars. And especially Grosjean, or Grosjean's coming a lot, up a lot in this, especially Grosjean going through the barriers at Bahrain. That could easily have been a fatality as well without the halo too. So, you know, if you're, if you're a new fan to Formula One or if you're a new fan to motorsport in general there is always this constant danger that you have to treat with respect. And I think as a, whatever, 35 years watching Formula One, if I've seen my last fatality in F1, or better still in motorsport, I'm more than happy. I don't need that risk anymore. Yeah, make no mistake. On the back of your ticket, it is always going to say motorsport is dangerous. But there is so much that we can do to try and help that and uh, you know I, I one of the clients i work for is really pushing to you know get, get new safety technologies into into all of motorsport uh, and bringing f1 technology down into even club you know racing level and that is exactly what we should be doing excellent Thank you very much for for that, Chris. And thank you very much for all your mailbag questions. It has been a very different and interesting kind of show. So I hope you like it and we will call out for more stuff. I'm getting better uh, because I've got the help of of Kovox, who run all our email, who are our email server. Uh, And I always say it wrong, Kovox or Kovax. But there is a link below. They're a a Dutch-based email server. So if you need email solutions, go and click the link below. But they personally go in there and help me put all the questions into a folder so even dum-dum spanners can go and see it feedback at mistapex.net now we've not done this this season but to end this show on a a slightly lighter note let's give out our in-stream award as part of the main show comment of the week now then this is where we reward the best comments in our live chat you can watch the show live by subscribing to us on YouTube. But if you want to be part of the chat, that is our fine patrons who support us at patreon.com forward slash Apex. You can get an ad-free feed for your audio, or you can join us in our patron Slack group where the chat takes place. And a couple of times a month, we're going to do extra content, which is just me and Martin grabbing people from the crew, and we do our doom-scrolling episodes. So a little bit of F1 and a little bit of stuff from our lives as well. Follow me at Spanners Ready on Twitter, the show at MistapexF1. Chris is at Chris on Racing. Yes, and I've been TikToking as well, also at Chris on Racing. So uh, you can catch me on, on TikTok for 
mm. cool looking videos. Instagram for personal life, Twitter for ramblings. Oh, I, I, I'm on Instagram as well. Richard Reddy or Spanners Reddy on Instagram. And I did a TikTok again on the Missed Apex TikTok. So we're all ticking and talking, Chris, not just you young trendy ones. Matt is at MattPT55 on Twitter. You can buy Matt's wife's books. They're a bit mucky, though, uh, by following A. Weaver Writes. Links in the show notes below. But, Matt, who is the winner of... Oh, no, who are the nominees for Comment of the Week? Well, the nominees are our friend EJ, suggesting that for the occasional falling iguana, they should have double-waved nets for the drivers. (laughs) Well, yeah, you kill two birds with one stone. If you see the nets, you need to slow down. Also, happy coincidence, iguanas go in waved nets. Genius. Um, We have have our friend Stuart by Collis suggesting for those who are unhappy about the fake marina in Miami that we have an entire fake principality in Monaco. Is that a political joke? I don't understand. Uh, yeah, I think it pretty much. It's basically like a little tax haven, but yes, oh, it's more or less a, oh, okay. a, a, one of one is, of those. Is it jokes. like? Is it like Jersey, where they pretend? Oh no, yes. we're our own country. Unless there's war or something, then please come help us. That's pretty much. Oh, okay. I think where he's headed there. Uh, our good friend Rolando staying on. It turns out Monaco is really popular <laughs> for comments for some reason. I don't know why Spanners. Uh, saying that the problem is we should really think of Monaco as an appreciation race for the drivers. Like, hey, we know you race all year and make millions, but you don't get to see your family as much. So here, have a rich person party all weekend. Yeah, and it can be like a a mid-season rest for them. Indeed. Uh, We have two more to go. Tim Rudd is in with a specific rule for Monaco should be don't go there. Yeah. You were talking about a specific rule to make Monaco racing better. His is just don't go there. Yeah. Uh, and then last we have um, our friend. Now this is pod racing. Biased just means you have two cheeks, and I'm not going to explain it any more than that. Awesome. Okay. I like I like DJ's one. Did you like EJ's one? The Chris? first one. Oh, I, I thought you were asking Chris. Um, yeah. No, I loved EJ's one actually. Is that the winner? Then I think it has to be the winner. And some people say this segment doesn't flow. What was the comment? And who said it? It was EJ suggesting that for the occasional falling iguana, we should have double-waved nets for the drivers. <laughs> yeah, I do like that. Comment of the week. A worthy winner indeed. Thanks for tuning in to Missed Apex Podcast, the Miami race review. I think the race starts at 7 or 8 p.m. in the UK, which means it ends at 9 or 10 p.m., which is great, but we're going to give ourselves an hour to shake down, and we'll have Jono and Brad joining us. For Jono, it's actually just going to be the middle of the the middle of the morning. For Matt, I think it's going to be the evening or early evening. And for me and Brad, we'll have matchsticks holding up our our eyes and keeping us awake. But we will have that race review ready for you on your Monday morning commute. Until next time, wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.